All right, would you, if you're able, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then skip and read verses 18 through 23, beginning in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. You may be seated. According to the scriptures, there are only four responses to the Word of God. There's really only four responses to the Lord Jesus. That every response in one way or another, every person more specifically, in one way or another is found in one of these four categories here in this analogy. And in this analogy or this parable that Jesus gives, he's dealing with salvation. He's dealing with four groups of people, and only one group of people is saved. This morning, the title of my sermon is, Are You Saved? Now, in a congregation this size, the extreme majority of you already know the answer is yes. Now, some of you think the answer is yes, and you're wrong. Only God knows. Some of you know the answer is no. But many of you, the answer is yes, and you know it. To those of you who immediately know without any hesitation, I am saved, understand this should still be a very encouraging message for you. Because nothing should thrill our hearts more than taking time to think about 
the security of our salvation, knowing that we are saved. That should be an awesome thing. And as Christians, we need to take some time every now and then to just stop and think about, thank God I am saved. And so for those of you that immediately you hear the title of your sermon, you're like, oh, this wasn't for me this morning. Yes, it is. It should be very encouraging for you. But I do not apologize that I have showed up this morning to preach to a small group of people. Who knows, in a congregation this size, maybe 20, maybe two. But this morning I want to speak to the man or the woman who needs to know, am I saved? Jesus gives this parable, and it is the most important parable of all the parables. It helps answer the question of, am I saved? And there's not a more important question in your entire life than that one. It's the most important parable of all parables because if you don't understand this one, you'll misunderstand the rest. In Mark 4, this same parable is given, and here's what Jesus told his disciples about this parable. He said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus said that the parable you and I just read holds the key to understanding all the rest of them. And that if we don't get this one right, we will misunderstand the rest. This is also the only parable Jesus ever gave where he took the time to thoroughly explain the application of the parable. You won't find this anywhere else. And that also shows how important this parable is. Now, before we get to the four types of people. That's the heartbeat of this morning. There are some points in this parable that make it very important. Why this parable is, or this parable is so important to the rest of them is because there's some foundational truths that Jesus lays down where in essence he's telling us when you hear the other parables, these are the things that we're talking about. And so first of all, we notice in the parable that the aim is the heart. We, Jesus gave an explanation that said that stony or the, the, the path, the hardened path where the, the seed couldn't even penetrate. He said that's the heart that's so hard the word doesn't get in. And here's what he says. Satan comes and immediately steals, listen, what was sown in his heart. So the aim of God is your heart. It's not the brain. You need to know that. Now, the fact that the aim is the heart does not mean that somehow we have to chuck our brain in the trash when we show up to church. Our God is a rational God. He is the creator of heavens and earth. He is the creator of science. And so you need to understand that being a Christian does not mean you take your brain and chuck it in the trash. Quite the opposite. But what we learn here is that you cannot argue a person into salvation. And that in order for someone to be saved, something must happen in the heart. It must go deeper than head knowledge. And the aim of God is not the brain of a man or a woman. The aim of God is the heart of a man or a woman. Now, this is important because for those of you that need to get right with God, you need to understand that when the Holy Spirit is dealing with you, you will feel something being dealt with in here. It will go deeper than the cognitive level of arguments. 
There will be something that goes on inside of you where deep in you there is this turmoil between you and God, and you become aware of it. This is also important for those of us that are preaching, teaching. Christians that are active about your faith, out there trying to win the lost, understand something. We will never argue a single person into the kingdom of God. And it's important to know that because the only thing that transforms a person is when the heart is changed. And guess what? You and I can't change somebody's heart. Only God can do that. And when we understand that, it forces us to have a sense of dependency upon God. Where it's like, God, I w- I'm praying for this person. I'm praying for these people. I want to see change, but I recognize you alone are the only one who can change their heart. And so, God, as I speak, as I live my life in front of my coworkers, as I witness to my neighbors and my, my friends and family, God, help me to do it with an understanding. I cannot argue people into salvation. This is not a brain argument. It is a heart issue. And therefore, God, I need you to work through me to do what I can't do by myself. And I have to acknowledge I can't see the heart. The Bible says man sees or looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so, number one, Jesus says, understand something about my parables. They are about the heart of mankind. Number two, notice that the seed is the Word of God. It is the Word. In all four sections of these people, it is the Word of God that is given to them in order to transform them. Three of the four reject it, and we're going to look at those three in a minute. But it is the Word of God. This is another important point is that the Word of God alone has the power to change. It is the Word of God that sharper than a two-edged sword. Not the church. Not things that we do. So, while I believe it's important that you should be able to invite people to church, and they should be able to come and hear the Word of God preached here, that's important. We must understand that winning the lost and seeing lives transformed comes down to the Word of God. If you are here this morning and you need your life to be transformed and you need to be saved, you need a miracle in your life, understand something. The miracle that you're looking for is going to come in connection with how you handle the Word of God. You need God to change your life. You need God to, you know, do do a work in your marriage. You need God to, to do something for you. Understand, you've got to respond properly to the Word of God. And it is about the Word. It's about how you see the Word. It's about how you receive the Word. It's about how you hear the Word. The Word of God is the seed that changes the heart. And so when we're out trying to win the lost, when we're doing missions, when we're doing church, when we're working, when we do what we do, our mission must be to get the Word out. Notice the goal is new life. That is the goal is that the seed produce fruit, and fruit is new life. Notice that opposition comes from everywhere. Satan has a handful of different ways that he comes at us to choke out the life of God in our life. And finally, notice that the response that you make is witnessed in this life, but it determines your eternal destiny. So the response that you make to the word, it will impact this life. 
and it will be evidenced in this life. You will see fruit. But not only is it evidenced in this life, the response you make determines your eternal destiny. These foundational truths need to be applied to every parable that we understand. God's after the heart. The way that he goes after the heart is through the word. There is opposition to try to keep you from receiving the word. Yet, you ultimately, it's your heart that has to respond to the word of God. And however your heart responds, however you respond to God's word, will impact your life here and it will impact your eternal destiny. Those are the major themes that need to, to, to help us understand why this is such an important parable. So now let's look at the only four responses to Jesus. There's only four of them. Number one, those who outright reject him. In verse 19, it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, this is what was sown along the path. So Jesus gives four different analogies of soil. One of the soils is the path where you would walk constantly while you were sowing. That path gets trampled down, it gets hard, and so when you throw seed on it, the seed cannot penetrate the soil, it just sits on top and basically bakes, and the birds come down and eat the seed. He uses that picture to say this is what happens in the heart of those who have hardened hearts. They don't even understand the word. That's what he says. They don't understand it. There's no perceiving it. There's no real hearing it. The word goes out, but it does not go in at all. These are the people who take no thought to the word of God at all. These are the people that, you know, it's like the word of God goes, literally goes one in one in one in ear and out the other. These are those that, that often mock the word of God, but at the end of the day, they have taken no sincere consideration to the word of God. They just think it's meaningless. They don't care what it says. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to meditate on it. They don't want to consider it. They don't want to ponder it. These people, Jesus says, are the hard-hearted ones here who have no understanding at all. Theirs is a most miserable life. These have hearts that not only ruin their relationship with God, but ruin their relationship with everybody else. Often these people are very mean-spirited when it comes to spiritual things. And short of a miracle, these people will find their fate sealed in an eternity of hell. Now I want you to notice something that's most important about the hard-hearted man. It teaches us something about our enemy. Notice that even though that seed is on hard ground, that it cannot penetrate, Satan still comes and steals away the seed. We see that this hard-hearted man, as hard-hearted as he is, is still under the attack of Satan. It teaches us something about our enemy. He is ruthless, and he never gives up, and it doesn't matter how far a person is from God, Satan has come to do nothing but to steal, kill, and destroy, and even the hard-hearted man, Satan is still after trying to destroy that person. It teaches us something about our enemy. Number two, the next two types of people 
require a much more calculated attack from the enemy. So the first is he who outright rejects the Lord. Number two, there are those who welcome him as Savior, but deny him as Lord. In Matthew 13, 20, and 21, here's, here's that group. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately he falls away. A couple of things to note about this particular group of people. Notice Jesus says they hear it and receive it. This is some of what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard to, to grasp for a lot of folks in this hyper grace era of time that we live in. But I just challenge you to look at the word yourself. Consider what I'm saying. Go home and study it yourself if you need to. This person, Jesus said, hears it and receives it. And they're still going to hell. Why? He says that what he heard he originally received with joy, but then in a short amount of time, he learned something else. This is going to cost me something. There's tribulation, there's persecution, and when they find that out, they're done. It really reveals the shallowness of their commitment. Why would somebody immediately hear and receive with joy? Well, their, their only perspective is, is the, the, the benefit of being a follower of Jesus. So, you know, it's like, hey, okay, they understand. Like, they hear it. I am a sinner, and I am in danger, and, and, and my, I'm in danger because I'm, I'm, I'm not right with God. I'm going to have to meet my maker, and I know that I'm not right with him. And then they hear the good news, that there is a way out, that the Lord has died for me, that the Lord Jesus shed his blood for me, and if, if I will turn to him, my sins can be forgiven. And as my sins are forgiven, I can become in a right standing with God, and ultimately, I get to go to heaven because of that. Well, who doesn't want that? And so there's this immediate receiving. It's an, an honest receiving. It's an immediate receiving with joy. But the problem is they didn't count the cost. And they didn't recognize that being a Christian does cost something. Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Nothing is more costly than a cross. So we don't earn our salvation by being good or doing good works. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fact that we are saved through Jesus alone does not equal, this doesn't cost me anything. It does cost something to serve the Lord. And what happens is a lot of folks find out that, and then all of a sudden, like, no, I'm out of this. Jesus uses the word tribulation or persecution. It's like the fact is, it's going to get hard sometimes being a Christian. There's some things you're going to, he uses the word, they don't endure there's some things you have to endure as a Christian. It's not always easy. 
And we go through tribulation. We go through hard times. And there are those who sometimes turn and receive the Lord with joy, even with a right understanding of the rewards. They understand this is about salvation. This is about me being forgiven of my sins. But they don't, they have not counted the cost of truly serving the Lord. And then all of a sudden, when it gets hard, friends want to mock you. Friends want to try to influence you to turn against God, to sin against God. They want to try to shame you for standing for your faith and living for God like you ought to live. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, I didn't know this was going to be this hard. I'm out. And then there are those who turn and receive with joy for the wrong reasons. Like, they're, they're mistaken. They actually thought that if they turned to God, that that meant everything on earth was going to become easier. God was going to fix their, their problems, and God was going to make them rich, and God was going to make them healthy, and God was going to make them wealthy. And so they thought, well, hey, why not do that? And then they turn, turn to the Lord and find out, wait, this isn't how it works at all. And all of a sudden, they're out. And so there's this quick joyful burst of, I'm a Christian, but is not followed with a life of enduring and truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus, this group right here, not saved, folks. Not saved. These are people that are often after something. Like, you know, it's like they're, they're going to turn to God for a little while, and they're going to follow the Lord because they think, you know, everything's going to be better. And then all of a sudden they get over here. That's ah, not better. Some things are hard. It's difficult to be obedient to the Lord. And so they think, forget that. I'm going to go back this way. And I'm going to go after the things that I want and after the relationships I want. I'm going to live the way I want. Here's what you find out over here. It's not easy over here either. And then they're out over here. And then it's like, oh, this is a mess. I don't like this anymore. And so they turn back to God again. I've seen people do this 10 or 15 times in a 20-year span. Turn back to God again. Okay, God, now I'm going to serve you this time. And, and they're back and forth and back and forth because really in the depth of their heart, there's never been a real commitment to God. It's a commitment to self-gratification. And if they actually believe that God is going to make their life better, bingo, let's do it. Then they get over here and they find out that there are tribulations still. Sometimes we've got to endure. Life could still be hard as a Christian. They're like, oh, well, what's the point of that then? I thought God was going to make it easy. And they run back, do the same old thing, and they're just in this constant cycle. Here's what Jesus says, not a true Christian. They're committed to something else that looks like me. They do understand the word enough to know that he is God, that there is none other but him. But when you look at their commitment, it is clearly identifiable. They are always, as soon as troubles come, they are turning on the Lord. These folks are not willing to pay the cost. Now, note something, and this is where it gets difficult. This person and the next does understand the Word. The first one didn't. These are people who understand. These are not people who are all out blinded and don't know. These people understand. They know. And it's my personal opinion that these people are actually in the greatest danger. Because Jesus also taught us that it would be better to have not known than to have known and not obeyed the truth. These groups of people fall into this category. And it is this preacher's belief based upon what I just said and my understanding of the word. It is this preacher's belief 
that the greater punishment lies in these two groups of people than for the first. So, you have those who outright reject him. You have those who welcome him as Savior. They want the blessings of being saved, but they do not want a Lord. They don't want him to be God of their life. They want to, they want to go after whatever seems easiest and best. Number three, you have those who love their things more than they love God. In verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I like the word prove. There are certain things in our life that prove who we really are and where we stand with God. So, Jesus says this group were choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So let's, let's talk about those two things. First of all, the cares of the world. The Bible tells us that all that is in the world could be also summed up in these three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's the desire to, to have more. It is, it is the same desire that drives gluttony, and gluttony is more than just food. It is the constant desire for more. It is never being satisfied with what we have. It is always wanting something else, something more. It is the inability to be satisfied with what we have very long. I had it, and now I'm hungry for more. This is the, the, the lust of, of the world. You've got the lust of the flesh, which is or the lust of the eye that is pretty obvious. And then you've got the pride of life. Big category. Just a desire to have things, to be liked, to be popular, to have power, to have influence. All the things that drive the world. Jesus says the cares of the world choke out this particular group. The constant concern for those things. When you think about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are all selfish. And so we have a little clue about this person. This particular person in this category is primarily concerned about themselves. And their commitment to themselves is superior to their commitment to God. You will find these are people that are actually not willing to sacrifice unless they are 100% convinced that their sacrifice will be rewarded with an even greater reward. Which, by the way, isn't really sacrifice. It's payday. That's like saying I sacrifice by going to work. No, you don't. You get paid for going to work. There's an actual payoff for it. That's why you do it or you wouldn't go. The same thing is true with a lot of these people's spiritual life. They're not willing to sacrifice and give up anything that matters to them because the, 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 the hunger for the things of the world, the, the cares of the world, choke them out. Now, this can also apply to having so much possessions 
that the general, the general uh, life that you live requires a lot of attention to these things. I think about what the Apostle Paul told Timothy, that he should not entangle himself again with the affairs of the world. In other words, to that young preacher, he needed to be so focused on his ministry that he was not focused on the general things most people in the world had to focus on. And the next statement tends to help verify that. He says, there's two, two ways that I define this group of people who love their things more than they love God. They are choked by the cares of the world. And then notice, secondly, the deceitfulness of riches. That's an interesting word that Jesus would use to define riches, that they are deceitful. Very important point here is that we understand that according to God, riches are deceitful. And I want to talk about riches a moment. First of all, it is not a sin to be rich. It is a, it's not a sin to have money. A lot of people misquote the Bible, and they'll say the Bible says money is the root of all evil. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And it is possible to have money and not love it. It's possible to have wealth and keep it in its proper perspective and not fall in love with that wealth and actually use it as a tool to advance the kingdom of God. That is possible. But here's a very important point. Even if we have riches, and even if we, we want to use them for the right purposes, you have to understand something about riches. God says they are deceitful. And so we've got to be ever clever and wise to make sure that we are not deceived by our riches. One other thing I want to point out, because it applies to all of us, before I look at what it means to be deceived by riches, is this. When I talk about the rich, most of us here have somebody in mind that, that you, you, you can go to that you think, well, that's what like really being rich looks like. But I would challenge you to be honest about who you are and the life that you have. Because I travel a handful of times a year around the world to people who literally their entire life have never even had running water in the house. And so the poorest among us, this is, this is a very likely comment that's probably probably factual. The poorest person in this room, whoever you are, the poorest family in this room, more than likely you are still in the top 5% of the richest people on planet earth. And so then when I talk about being rich, you go to the top 1%. And you're like, oh, I'm not in this category. We are. And so all of us have a lesson to learn here about the deceitfulness of riches. So why? Why are riches deceitful? A deceiver is someone who lies. Why is it said that riches lie to us? A couple of reasons. Number one, riches lie because they make you, uh, excuse me, number one, riches lie 
because they promise fun and safety while pulling you away from God. Would you agree that you just feel safer when you have wealth? That the more that you have, there's a sense of security about that? But the reality is, is that those riches pull you away from God. And I'm going to prove it here in just a moment. Riches pull us away from God. And so if we don't guard our hearts, and we, we're not very intentional about how we see our possessions, they pull us away from the Lord. And listen to me very carefully. Anything that pulls you away from God is not safe for you. Anything. And yet, we can be very deceived when we have things and possessions of feeling a whole lot more safe and secure than we are because we're safe and secure from an earthly, worldly standpoint, or at least more than, safer than most folks, the more that we have. From an earthly and worldly standpoint, we're safer. But what happens is they often pull us away from God. Why do our riches pull us away from God? Because riches demand attention. You cannot possess things that you don't pay attention to. I mean, unless you're an idiot. If you own three homes, you've got a home here and a vacation home across the way and a vacation home, you know, the other side of the country, you must take care of those things. Now, I'm not saying those things are evil. Do not misunderstand me. But what I'm telling you is they do require attention. And the more stuff you have, the more things you possess, the more attention you must give to it. It is a fact. Years ago, when $250 million was a ton of money, now we got billionaires around the world, but years and years ago, J.D. Rockefeller said this. I'm not quoting him word for word, but this is what he basically said. The care of $250 million is enough to drive any man mad. I mean, let's just say you had $250 million. What do you do with it? Let's just say you had 10 homes. What do you do with those homes? I don't care if you're not the one mowing the lawn. You better find someone to mow the lawn. You've got to take care of your stuff. And there will come a point when you possess so much and you have so many things and so many toys and so many activities that all of a sudden, if you look at the pie chart of your life, the amount of time that you spend caring for your possessions, is taking a huge chunk of your life. And you start to look at the amount of time that you are truly devoted to building God's kingdom. And all of a sudden, you've got a much smaller sliver. See, this is the deceitfulness of riches. They promise safety and security, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, they own us. And I will say this again. Owning wealth and riches is not a sin but when your riches begin to own you, you are in trouble. And they are deceitful. They don't want you to know on the front end, this is going to require your time, it's going to require your money, this is going to require your attention, this is going to become something you must focus on. There's a warning to us here that the deceitfulness of riches have the capacity to choke the spiritual life out of us. That the care for the things of the world have the ability to choke the life out of us. One of the things that often happen 
with the deceitfulness of riches is we think that if we had more, we would do more for God. The, 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 the percentage of times that is true is so minimal. Most of the time when we have more, we spend it on ourselves. And, and if, 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 if you take a look at your own life and... I don't really know how to communicate this real well, what's in my mind here, in my heart. Um, what happens when we generate wealth, generally speaking? We think to ourselves, if I had a million dollars, I'd give so much more to the Lord, I'd help this and that. And then you get a million dollars and you don't really. Instead, you're spending it on X, Y, and Z, possessions, things, this, that. And increase in tithe doesn't count. I mean, I want you to think about your wealth. Some of us don't have more to give than our tithe, and that's fine. But the tithe is not yours. God said it's his. So you, when you look at the pie chart of your life, and you look at how much money you spent last year in 2023, how much of it did you spend on yourself and on your self-gratification and on your toys and on your things? It'd be good to go home and actually make that pie chart. Make it up figure out how much did I spend on just exorbitant living last year. And then right next to it, put how much did I give in addition to my tithe into the work of God. And generally speaking, it does not, it's a sad truth, but generally speaking, not always, the more a person makes, the smaller that becomes. And we often think to ourselves, I'm just going to, I'm going to hoard it and I'm going to hoard it and I'm going to hoard it. And then when I die, I'll have more to give. No, you won't. If your heart's not to give it now, you're not going to have the same heart to give it when you die. That's just an excuse that you give yourself to not be taking what God has given you now and using it now to advance his kingdom. So riches can be very, very deceitful. They steal us of our time. They force us to, to, to they demand attention. And sometimes riches are deceitful. Because they give the false sense of security that you know, God must be blessing me. Listen, I actually believe sometimes God does bless people financially and make them wise so that they know how to generate wealth so that it can be used to advance his kingdom and produce true spiritual fruit in the kingdom of God. I actually believe that. Sometimes it's not the Lord. If... If your riches have caused you to turn away from God and give God less of your time and give God less of your focus, you'll never convince this preacher it was God who did it for you. It's one of two people. Either it's you and it's just the way of life and choices that you've made and you've been successful and you've allowed your own success to pull you away from God or, and I actually believe this, Sometimes I actually believe it's the devil. We see in the context of this parable that we have an enemy that's trying to snatch away the seed and do anything he can to, to choke it out. I do think in rare cases, probably not the norm, but in rare cases, there are times when the enemy has been able to tell this person here is going to make a great impact for the kingdom of God if I don't just bless, if I don't find a way, I take away the word bless, if I don't find a way to distract them and so make them successful. 
throw wealth at them, throw things at them that will absolutely destroy all of their time. They will become engrossed in more and more and more and more and more to where they are unfruitful for the kingdom of God. I actually believe sometimes the enemy might do that to divert people. As I move, I want to point out this group of people as well. Choked out, don't produce fruit, and ultimately are not heaven-bound. And so we need to be really cautious this morning and be honest about what category am I in. Finally, we have group four, and that is those whose true faith produces identifiable life change. These are the only people who are saved. Jesus said of these people that they hear, they understand, and they produce fruit. Fruit is the evidence of new life. And I love it that Jesus says some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Here's what he's telling us there. It's not going to look identical for all of us. There's not, it's not like there's some perfect, crisp way that if you're truly saved, this is the exact fruit that you produce. Here's what Jesus says. It's vast. It's varied. There are some that produce more fruit than others, but you will tell if it's producing fruit or not. And these are those who are truly saved. They have a life change that is visible. They have a life that is visibly producing obedience to God and fruit for His kingdom. These have more than simply lip service to something they say they believe. They produce fruit for the kingdom of God, and this is what separates them from the rest. I want you to consider Jesus' closing statements from the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest sermon ever recorded by Jesus. It takes three full chapters. And he gives this full sermon and he concludes with this huge warning about people who think they're saved that aren't. He gives three different analogies back to back to back saying the same thing. We're going to read through them. Let's look at them. The first one in Matthew 7 and verse 16. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Next, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are people, they never did repent. They constantly lived in their sins. Everyone then 
who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. All three of these are made back to back to back. There's no break in between them. This is an incredibly strong way of finishing a sermon where Jesus says the same thing three different ways using three different analogies. And in a nutshell, what he says is, there are those who say that they are followers of Christ, and then there are those who are actually followers of Christ. And in verse 20, he tells us, how do you know? You will recognize them by their fruits. We'd ask our worship team if you all would get in place. I want to conclude with something else that's very important from our parable this morning. And that is that salvation is offered to everyone. Even the hard-hearted person, God's throwing the seed out at. There's no group, there's no place, there's no location in that field where seed was not thrown. And so it doesn't matter who you are. You need to know God is after your heart. The response that you make is up to you. How you respond to the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God in your life, the importance of God to you is up to you. And how you choose determines the outcome of your eternal life. Father, this morning, as we conclude, I pray that you would finish your work here. God, I believe that probably there were some people that came here this morning that need to be saved and their heart has been pricked, and the Holy Spirit's dealing with their heart. There may be a man or a woman, or maybe a few. No hesitation. I know I'm not right with God. I knew it when I walked in. And Lord, I don't, I, there, there may be a few, Lord, that, that they know it, and they, they want to get right with you. I pray for whoever they are, that even as I pray, they get up from where they're at, come down to one of these altars, and pour their heart out to you. God, I pray there might be some here that fall in those first two, or category two or three. They're honest. They believe they're saved. But their life is found right there, dead center. Point two, point three. I pray the Holy Spirit this morning would convict that man, convict that woman, convict that boy, convict that girl. And that they get it settled that today it changes. My heart belongs to God and no one else. I'm done chasing the cares of the world. I'm done, I'm done being deceived by riches. I'm, I'm done uh, you know, being choked out, Lord. I'm done. I'm done only coming for the good. I'm ready to endure. I'm ready for your word to go deep. I want more than just surface relationship with you, Lord. God, for those people, I pray as well, even now as I pray. 
God, they'd be motivated to come. Lord, finish. Finish what you want to do here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. This morning I feel compelled to say one more thing before I just say come. You know, there are folks, there are folks that many times in their life have prayed. Like, I want to be saved. I ask God to save me. But then I go right back out the doors and nothing changes in my life. And I've prayed over and over and over and over again. I've been to the altar 20 times, and I'm the same person I've always been every time I go to the altar. Here's what I want to challenge you with. Is it possible that you've never actually repented of your sins? Is it possible that you've came with the heart that honestly, in your heart, you still enjoy the sinning and the playing around in it? That's why you run back to it. And when you come, your basic thought process is, God, just brainwash me. Lord, make me never want to sin the rest of my life. And then, oh Lord, I will serve you. It's not going to happen that way. The Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's on you. God is not going to repent for you. He's not going to make you repent. And you have to get it settled in your mind and your heart. I'm done with that sin, and I'm turning from the sin in my life, and I'm going to follow the Lord no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much I have to endure. This is less about God brainwash me and do something magical in me, and it might be a lot more about God. I'm turning to you with all of my heart, and I'm going to follow you. And the irony is that when that is the true motive of the heart, that then... God touches us, and then God transforms us, and then God gives us a new nature, and it does become a little easier. And all I can say to those of you that have maybe frustrated yourselves because you've tried and you've prayed and your life hasn't changed, all I can do is tell you this. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. You better do whatever it takes to get it right. Whether that's here at this altar or whether you go home tonight, make up your mind, I will not go to sleep until I know that I know that I know that I know that God has touched me and I have transformed. But there is nothing more important in your life than getting that settled. you got to get serious about it.